As you can imagine, beloved listeners, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the passing of time recently as after 33 years I head into my last few months on our little wireless program. Did you know that the very concept of the passing of time simply does not exist in certain languages? Some languages have no word for time at all. What a marvellous idea. My next guest has spent uh, his life studying the myriad of tongues in all corners of the earth, and it probably would not surprise him that a lot of them wouldn't describe our globe as having corners either. His latest book is about not only how language reveals differences in the way we describe the world, but also the way we see it, feel it, experience it. Dr. Caleb Everett is Professor of Anthropology and Psychology at the University of Miami, and he makes his debut from that very place. Welcome to LNL. We'll come back to how uh, people describe time shortly, but first, would you start by telling us how you passed a lot of your youth uh, with your parents in the Amazon? Hi, Ian. Uh, it's good to talk to you. Yeah, my youth was spent in uh, Amazonia, much of it anyway, about 11 years of it. And I was there with my parents who were missionaries and my two sisters. Um, and their missionary work took them to an indigenous group of people called the Pitaha. Uh, this is a language that my father later did research on. And we spent much of our time actually in the village, living in the jungle next to these people, and also in nearby cities and in other cities in Brazil. But mainly when we were in the village, we uh, we lived right next to the people. We spent time with them as they fished. We spent time with them as they went about their day-to-day -day lives. And so it was, I think, a, a, a fairly uh, unique background, um, at least compared to most of my friends uh, when it come in the United States. And uh, it was a fantastic experience. And I think it gave me an early appreciation in life for just how diverse people can be. And along with that, how diverse their languages can be, because that language is quite distinct from, say, English or Portuguese in a number of ways. Now, following your childhood in Amazonia, as an adult, you developed a passion for both anthropology and psychology. How did that lead you to studying linguistics? Well, I part of it was because of, as you say, because of my background, because I grew up there, I was aware that people differ so much and with respect to their languages and with respect to how they think about, for instance, quantities, which has been a big focus of my research, how people think about quantities and how they discriminate them. And so as I was getting my PhD in linguistics, I had this fascination with anthropology also and psychology, but I was interested in the intersection of language, culture, and thought, which is why I was interested in those three disciplines. And as I did some reading, I found sometimes that some of the literature, some of the academic literature, still underestimated the extent to which people were different. You know, So I would read a paper claiming that humans think X, or humans think like X, and I would think to myself, um, that's not true of all humans, because I know of a population of humans that doesn't do that. For sure. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so it led me back to do some research in Amazonia and um, other kinds of research with colleagues in other places, too, to sort of investigate some of the ways that 
linguistic diversity and diversity of thought in the world today is underestimated, uh, even in the academic literature. I should stress that I'm one of many people that that has sort of made this push in the last decade or so, more than that, really, of seeing that stressing just how diverse humanity is and how diverse our cultures are, and that we have underestimated that just largely because of a reliance on European languages and European cultures when we do so much of our research. Caleb, you began teaching English to people for whom it uh, it's not their first or only language, and you discovered a big problem with teaching, especially when it came to telling your students to, well, hit the books. You're right. So I would say things like hit the books um, or use some other idiom, and I would see some expressions of confusion. And these were people who were learning uh, English for the first time. And they had some exposure to English. And one of the things that they they started during the course of the semester they they came to me repeatedly, different students, and said, you know, you're teaching us these things about English grammar, but what I really want to know is, for instance, what does it mean to kick the bucket? Or what does it mean, you know, <laughs> and they would they would come up with all these idioms, and I realized, and to be to be clear, <laughs> many researchers realized this before me, this was just something I was figuring out experientially, was just how much when you look at english how much of it is idioms we we tend to think of these things as just sort of exceptions to to grammar um or just these convenient things that we have to learn but it turns out that there's so many of them they're so pervasive that you can argue they're actually very much part of grammar and that grammar works in much of the same way as idioms um and one of the really fascinating threads of research over the last couple of decades has been by people that have come to realize, first of all, as I did, but uh, more rigorously, just how pervasive idioms are in languages like English and in many other languages, and how there is no actual clear de- uh, division between idioms and grammar. You know, kind we, of- we use absolute hundreds of them quite unconsciously. The last straw, for example, comes to mind. Now, the method you were teaching was based on the theory developed by the uh, sainted Noam Chomsky, who used to be a regular on the program. Please explain. So, yes. Yeah, so I was teaching at the time. It was something related to um, what's called generative grammar, which is the broad framework that Noam Chomsky developed and which which you could argue shed light on a number of phenomena in the world's languages. I would say that increasingly, uh, again, over, say, the last two decades or so, there's been dissatisfaction with that paradigm of how languages work because it 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 assumes what's called the universal grammar, which is that despite the fact that the world's languages, over 7,000 languages, are so different, and we've known that for so long, there's still this belief that there's this universal grammar underlying it all that comes from a genetic sort of component of our species, and that all languages share this universal grammar. But just the longer that we've been doing research on languages, we just couldn't find clear evidence for, for one thing, anything that's universal. And it was, at least in the world's languages, we don't seem to find anything that's universal. And a a researcher in Australia by the name of Nick Evans wrote a fantastic paper on this with a colleague about 15 years ago, where they pointed out that 
all the things that had been expected to be universal in the world's languages were never really discovered to be universal. There is always an exception somewhere. I have and to so, say that uh, Chomsky told me that he was having terrible problems with the First Nations languages here in Australia. Yeah, that's, well, it's, that's neat that he was honest about that in terms of, I think that has been one of the areas of the world that's presented, to be fair to Chomsky, it's presented riddles for all sorts of linguistic theories, the languages of Australia. The same is true of Amazonia and a few other places. And I would argue, again, that part of that comes back to just so many of the models that we develop for how languages work come from European languages primarily. And so we assumed, you know, the, this this degree of homogeneity in the world's speech that's just not there. Well, that, that takes us to the so-called weird language. Tell me what weird languages are. So weird languages and cultures, the acronym WEIRD stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democracies. And this acronym was, was created by some psychologists also about 15 years ago. And this was actually a critique of psychology that can also be applied to linguistics and to a lesser extent anthropology. And the, the point of that paper and that acronym is that we often make claims about how humans think and how human psychology works. But those claims, when they and they looked in, they looked at many, many studies, and they found that about ninety-eight percent of those claims are based on weird populations, and non-weird populations actually represent the vast majority of the world's cultures and the world's languages. And this focus on weird people is understandable because weird people are the ones that exist around major research universities. They are the people that are the easiest candidates for experiments. It's just a lot easier to investigate them. It's I, a lot I, have a vague, I have a vague memory that this also uh, makes IQ tests problematic. Yes, you could argue that um, IQ tests are very difficult to translate into other cultures. So if you think about with IQ tests, rotation of different um, symbols, for instance, if you're in a culture where you don't have those symbols in the first place, so like say a triangle, if that's kind of a little bit unfamiliar, and th then you don't really represent things in two dimensions, which many cultures still do not, you can imagine all sorts of issues that there would be for, for applying an IQ test in a meaningful way in say many parts of New Guinea or Africa or Amazonia or elsewhere. I'm talking to Dr. Caleb Everett, and Caleb is a professor of anthropology and psychology at the University of Miami, and we're discussing his new book, A Myriad of Tongues, How Languages Reveal Differences in How We Think, and it's published by Harvard University Press. Caleb, back to the passing of time, could you uh, tell us more about what you discovered about how concepts of time are expressed in, well, in different cultures? Yes. Yeah, so if you look at how time is expressed and how we think about it, if let's just take something basic like tense. We think of past, present, and future tense. If you look at the world's languages, you see that they break time up just with respect to tense in many different ways. So the language that I worked on in Amazonia, Carichiana was the name of the language. They only have future and non-future tense. So it's a two-tense system. Some systems in South America have as many as seven tenses. Many languages do not have tense at all. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that these people don't 
perceive the passing of time or anything like that, but it does mean that they're demarcating the passing of time in very different ways than we do, right? At least with with respect to grammatical tense. But if you think there are some more pervasive ways, I would argue that the passing of time gets encoded in language. And this again gets back to idioms and metaphors, but they're very common ones. So we have many metaphor, many idioms in English that refer to the passing of time as though the future is in front of you and the past is behind you. So you can think of what some of these expressions might be. There are many expressions that, that, that encode this concept. And interestingly, if you watch English speakers talk, a lot of times when they're gesturing about the past, they will point behind themselves over their shoulder, perhaps. And there, and there are oftentimes when they're speaking about the future, there will be subtle gesture, gestures forward with their hands. So it seems to be not just in the linguistic realm or the the spoken realm, it's also in the gestural realm and in a broader cognitive way that we're making sense of how time is passing. However, if you look at a number of groups around the world, it works in the reverse sense. So the future is behind you and the past is in front of you. And again, here they have many expressions that encode that way of talking about time. And gesturally, you see that they have the reverse pattern that you see with English speakers. So this is these are just two metaphors. There, there are others that refer to the passing of time. And you can see how the, you can see where they would come from, right? So are the future is in front of you. This seems to come from just locomotion as we're moving forward. What was in front of us both in, in in the physical sense and also what was in the future is now where we're at, right? So there's some mapping there. This is, al- comes- this is almost Einsteinian because he didn't really believe in the uh, in sequential time at all. Tell me, in most languages, I believe, they don't even refer to hours and minutes because, well, they're quite recent innovations. They are very recent innovations from the perspective of human history. So ours ultimately date back to an Egyptian uh, system of sundials where they had 10 divisions of sundials and then they added one for dawn and one for dusk. So you ended up with a division into 12. That's why we have 12 hours of the day or 24 hours total. Ultimately, that was a later adaptation by other cultures. When it comes to the base 60 system that's so critical to why seconds last as long as they do and minutes last as long as they do, that goes back to an ancient number system of Mesopotamia, right? So we've inherited these things in this piecemeal fashion over the last few millennia. And seconds in particular are quite recent because we didn't have a way to keep track of 60 units of minutes until very recently in just the last couple of centuries. And of course, now we fracture seconds into milliseconds. It's an ongoing process. It is. And it's kind of interesting to me that if you think about, like, say, telling the time, if I say that it's, we'll say, 724 in the evening and it's 724 and then I go to hundreds of a second, I'm kind of, as I'm telling time, I'm kind of going through time in a historical sense from the Egyptian innovation of hours to the to the what is ultimately a Mesopotamian origin of minutes. And then I'm going back to a decimal system when I then break up seconds into smaller units, um, which is a much more recent thing. It's time to change the subject from time. Let's talk numbers or other measurable units. You discovered that there are even languages that have no numbers. 
there are languages that have no numbers. There are not that many of them. And actually, the, one of the key discoveries here was by my father, who noticed that this language that I grew up around, the Pitahan language, they didn't seem to have any words for precise quantities. And this was met with some skepticism, but a team of researchers from, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology went with him and did a battery of experiments to suggest that this was in fact the case, that these terms that were like number terms were used in very imprecise ways. Even words that we that we thought had meant one, it actually was more like one or a couple. And the word that people thought meant two can be used for two or three. And so there's just kind of like we say, a couple of, where there's some imprecision to a lot of people. Does it mean two? Does it mean three? And so this was noticed in the case of the Pitaha. I myself have returned there and done some research on this. And what we find is that these differences aren't trivial, that languages that lack number words altogether, this has some impact on how people discriminate quantities, perhaps unsurprisingly, but the impacts are larger than many theories of psychology or the psychology of numbers would have presumed before the discovery of these features of these languages like like Pirahan. I would have thought yeah. that uh, numbers were in some way tethered to fingers and toes, not the case? It is. Once humans develop numbers, not always the case, but most often the case, when numbers are invented within a culture, they're based around the fingers, right? And so this is why you get the preponderance of decimal systems around the world's languages, sometimes base 20 systems, which are due to the number of fingers and toes that we have. These are the most common number systems in the world's languages. However, not all languages have numbers, uh, at least be beyond extreme cases like Pitahan that seem to have no precise numbers. There are many languages that only have what are limited number systems of say one, two, many, or one, two, three, many. So in that case, they do not use their fingers to scaffold a robust number system, or they have not done it. Languages differ too in the way they describe kinship ties. Oh, and other social relations. They do. One of the language that I spent the most time doing work on in Amazonia, Carichiana, this is one of many examples of this. The kinship system is totally different than uh, English or other European languages or even other kinship systems that are that were already well established around the world. And one of the things I find interesting about it is that it encodes age a bit in the kinship system. So for instance, there's not just a word for brother, there's a word for older brother and younger brother, and these are very distinct terms. And same with sister, and same with a number of other kinship relationships. And there has been there have been a lot of researchers that have done some fascinating work on kin terms in Australian languages, in languages throughout the world. And here again, what we find is why while there are often commonalities in kinship systems, you can imagine why, because of genetic factors who were related to genetically, there's also a surprising amount of diversity that comes from the fact that certain cultures have 
just weighed certain factors more heavily. So something like age, relative age, may matter more in the kinship system of one culture than another. So then this raises the question, how do, do they think about these relationships differently and so forth? That's a lot harder to establish. But what we know is that they talk about these relationships in very different ways. And this is obviously not just language. This is a combination of language and culture operating in strong ways to help create very distinct relationships, even within what we think of as nuclear families around the world. And Caleb, these kinship definitions in language can be red flags about acceptable and unacceptable behaviour. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, who you can marry or have sex with. That's true. So uh, getting back to the Caricciano, they don't practice this anymore. But about a century ago, you know, there's two different words for nieces. So you're, as a man, my my sister's daughters would be a very different word than if I had a brother, my brother's daughters. And the one niece, there's the d- distinct term for it, is one that was actually the preferred marrying uh, partner of a man, right? And they again, they don't do this anymore. But the other niece, which we also just call niece, was totally off limits and would have been considered incest to marry that person. So these distinctions linguistically matter a lot, or they at least reflect uh, cultural realities that can matter a lot more than it may seem to those of us outsiders. My guest is Caleb Everett, Professor of Anthropology and Psychology at the University of Miami, and his book is A Myriad of Tongues, How Languages Reveal Differences in How We Think, published by Harvard University Press. Let's talk about pronouns and uh, gender, which seems to be such a vexed topic in English. It is a vexed topic. Languages here, again, differ more than sometimes people um, appreciate, I would say. So, for instance, you bring up gender and pronouns, and we sometimes think that this is something that just exists in all pronoun systems, is that they encode gender. Many of them don't, actually. So, some of the world's languages, for instance, Caricciana, again, the language that I mentioned previously, that's a language in which there's one pronoun to refer to, uh, whether it's a male. or It also doesn't encode uh, number. So the, the pronoun E, uh, that's how they say it, uh, refers to him, her, uh, she, he, and even they. And so gender is certainly not something that's encoded in that pronoun system. And that's true in, in many of the world's languages have what are called epicene pronouns that are just a gender neutral pronoun. And this is useful, you could argue, because many times we're referring to Um, someone whose gender is either irrelevant or we don't know it from the situation or it's it's just it's just something we're not aware of and then now we are forced to introduce this gender into the conversation arguably in ways that we don't really need to or may not be material and I did some experimental work on this about a decade ago and what we saw was that the in the case of the Caricciana over a series of tasks they didn't tend to introduce gender uh, into conversations or into descriptions of things as much as Americans did. And this then surfaced in some other aspects of the task. So in other words, it appeared from that study, at least, that they were perceiving situations that they were asked to describe 
in slightly more gender neutral ways because they weren't having to decide artificially, is this a male or a female when they didn't know it and introduce gender into the conversation. Caleb, but, many uh, people have pushed for, well, more egalitarian pronouns such as third person plural pronouns, them or they, even, even when only one person is being referenced. Yes, they have. And actually, these these efforts go back a lot longer than some people realize. So there's documentation of these efforts being made, as I recall, in the 1800s in English, in England, where folks had hoped to introduce less gendered pronouns, let's say, or, or have options that were less gendered. Um, because the default, as is often the case, is androcentric. It's male-centered. centered. So at the time, you were told in in grammar school and so forth, that if you didn't know the gender, then you referred to the person as he or him. And so these efforts have gone back a long way. The truth is these, as I, as I mentioned, you know, there are so many languages that lack gender altogether that you could argue that would be another way to do it, just take gender out of the equation completely. However, of course, that's not how language change works, just not by dictate and so even if we wanted to, that's not that's not something we could do other than through gradual social change. And that takes a really, really long time. So what pronouns we use about gender have a huge influence in society. Yes, you could you could argue that the pronouns that we use about gender, particularly if historically, I think I like to think the situation has changed with the changing of uh, gender roles in our society. It's just less acceptable now. Um, and it's proscribed to just use the male pronoun as the default. And this, so you could argue that this is more a case of language reflecting societal change. That's how it often is, rather than language driving societal change. So some are skeptical that you can make these changes, say, in pronouns and drive something as critical to society as gender roles. But you could also argue that these are also important things about society and about culture, the pronouns that we use. So we should be uh, comfortable changing pronouns as we need to and as people want to. But the truth is that society changes, as you know, it changes gradually most of the time. And we do see that as society and gender roles have changed so dramatically, we've seen differences in language, of course, in gendered speech and in terms of how the genders are referred to in pronouns and in other ways. The Diabella language in northeast Queensland has four genders. Yes, yeah, so this brings up an interesting point about gender, which is that it of, often is not, strictly speaking, about gender or biological sex. And so Diabella is a case where there are four genders, but they're not about male, female exactly, although male and female things are categorized into two of the separate genders. So that biological sex is relevant, but there's a lot more complexity to, to the system. And it's certainly not a language that I speak, but I've read some of the, the research on it. And there's, in fact, a famous book entitled Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things, written by the linguist George Lakoff. And the title there refers to some of the things that are categorized by the same gender in gerbil, women, fire, and dangerous things. Well, they, they include uh, some animal types, water, fire, violence. Yes, I think that's the more, the more accurate assessment. Um, the title was a bit of an interpretation of that. But it turns out that, that the point that you're raising here, that 
a language could have four gender system, four genders. Well, then some languages have what appear to be five genders and then six and then seven. And what we're really talking about here, arguably, are noun classes. Nouns get grouped into different categories by language according to many different factors. Biological sex can be one of those factors. Whether something is animate or inanimate can be another factor. The shape of things can be a different factor. And so here again, you could argue this is based on European influence that we tend to think of gender in certain ways. And we, we, we think that's the main thing in terms of how languages categorize things. And it's certainly a huge, huge part of it. But Noun classes, some African languages have well over a dozen noun classes. And these classes, this class membership has all sorts of effects on the grammar of the languages. So if you've ever learned French or Spanish or German, a language that has two or three genders, you know that it can be frustrating to just memorize some of these random nouns that seem like they're in the wrong category or they have nothing to do with biological sex and you just have to memorize this. So imagine learning a, a language that has over 12 <laughs> what we would call genders and all the permutations that that has on the grammar. That's that's exceedingly difficult to do. But again, they do it as children. That's a very complex cognitive task that they are quite familiar with by the time that they are fluent in their native language. Let's move on to shapes, colours, smells, sounds. I remember doing a program decades ago which cast doubt on the notion of blue and saying that many cultures had no word for it. So there is this term gru that is common in many of the world's languages. And gru, as you might guess, refers to green and blue. So on the color spectrum, uh, green and blue are adjacent. And as be, given that color is a spectrum, there's no actual clear point at which we can say something definitively goes from green or blue. And so this seems to be part of the reason that many of the world's languages dispense with the green-blue distinction altogether, and they have a category of GRU. Of course, that's just one of the ways in which the color terms for colors vary. Uh, many languages have so the number of terms for colors can vary dramatically. So, well, I shouldn't say dramatically, but basic color words. Some languages appear to have only three. Some have argued even less than that, or even no color terms in the way that we think about color terms. And then some languages like English have 11 basic color words. Of course, we have lots of different modifiers and different other color terms, but there are ways that we make this distinction and we classify words as being basic color words. We have 11. Some languages have more that have one or two more than that, but we're on the high side of things when it comes to that. But this, this variation is due in part to the fact that color hues appear on a spectrum, and so there are different ways to break up that spectrum. There are commonalities in terms of how the human cultures do it because of commonalities in our vision, but there, here again, there seems to be no universals in terms of how people talk about color. Let's look at the spectrum of smells now. Uh, if I was to walk into a, a cinema, I might say it smells like popcorn. Yes, you might say it smells like popcorn. And we, we use these kinds of strategies all the time. We say smells like quite often in our language because we don't have abstract odor terms so much. So you can think about an odor term like um, the closest we might get is something like petrichor, which is this word that very few people use or know, really, I think. And it's only a few decades old. And it refers to the smell after a rain, after the rain has, has passed into the soil and emitted this scent. 
But that's still a very specific sort of abstract odor term, and we really don't have any in English. And here again, European languages led to a bias and the expectation that humans, not just Europeans, but humans don't talk about odors in abstract ways. And increasingly, research by a number of scholars um, have shown that many languages around the world do have abstract odor terms in ways that we do not in English. So stepping into that theater, you wouldn't say it smells like popcorn in here. You would have a term that is more similar to it's dark in here or this theater is red, <laughs> uh, but referring to odor. So it would be an abstract odor term that can be used in many contexts, not just that theater, but every time you smell that sort of scent. And it wouldn't rely on the phrase, it smells like popcorn or it smells like butter. Caleb, clearly, clearly language is augmented by gesture, not simply the gestures you were describing with someone uh, hinting at past and present. But, you know, Italian, for example, heavens above, if the hands aren't dancing, you're not really talking. But Mandarin and Cantonese rely heavily on pitch and tone to convey meaning. They do, and they're they're one of, I mean, they're two of many languages uh, that rely on pitch and tone to, to just change the meaning of a word completely. So, in other words, obviously, we are always changing our pitch as we speak in English, sometimes in precise ways. But we don't have, if I say car, or I say car, you still think that that's an automobile, presumably, depending on, you may realize that the context that I use those different intonation patterns in different contexts, but you still recognize it's an automobile. The equivalent change in pitch, um, how fast our vocal cords are vibrating as we speak, the equivalent change in that in some languages would change the meaning completely. So you're no longer talking about a car, you're talking about something else. Chinese languages and languages of Southeast Asia are known to have pitch, uh, sorry, tone in in many of their languages. It's actually quite common in a number of the world's regions, including Amazonia and West Africa and Southeast Asia. It's something that we've known about for a long time, but as linguists have gone out in the world and documented languages, particularly over the last hundred years, we've seen that tonal languages aren't really some exotic thing. They're, in fact, the norm in a big chunk of the world. I'm fascinated by the eerie similarities in words, in very remote cultures. I'm thinking, for example, yabby, it's a little freshwater crustacean in Australia, and ebai, which is the term for a similar creature in Japan, or the Australian goanna with iguana. And I learned from you that mother, the word for mother, is similar in many languages. It is. So the word for mother often has what's that first sound, that nasal sound, that ma sound. That's very common. It's not found in all the lang uh, world's languages. Not all of them have a word for mother that has that sound in it, but it's it's quite common. And part of the motivation for this could be, although we don't know for sure, that it relates to the sound of suckling that kids make very early as infants. Well, that leads us to onomatopoeia, doesn't it? Yes, in some cases we have we have examples, I would say, of onomatopoeia that are very clear around the world's languages. There was a fantastic study by a colleague of mine named Damian Blasi in 2016, where they looked at thousands of the world's languages and saw that there are these tendencies that linguists hadn't noticed for certain 
sounds to crop up in words for certain meanings. And some of them relate to what you're referring to essentially in onomatopoeia, iconicity, certain things sound like what they're referring to. Sometimes it's a little less clear what the relationship is. So they notice, for instance, that the word for tongue tends to have a la sound in it, like what we write with the letter L. And this seems to be because when you say that sound, the sides of your tongue are bunched in and it's sort of, <laughs> you can you can feel your tongue a little bit more. We don't know that for sure, but that's that's one plausible account as to why that sound is so preponderant in that word across the world's languages. Tell me about idiophones and phonos themes. So phonos themes are, if you think of something like we have a lot of them in, in English where, say, uh, glisten, glimmer, glow. There's this GL sequence at the beginning of the word that seems to have some meaning, but it's not really a prefix. But it's associated with words that have to do with light or shining, like glimmer, glisten. Like So there is, there's something there. That's what a phonus theme is. And here again, it turns out that we thought that these were just kind of rarities in the world's languages. But they're they're more common than we thought, and they seem to play some role. They're they're an example of like sort of motivated words where it's clearly not a totally arbitrary association between the meaning and the form that the that the word takes. But here the association is a little less clear. You know what does gl have in common? The gl have in common with shiny things? It could just be a historical thing, a historical accident in many cases. But nevertheless, there are these patterns um, and these phonus themes that exist in languages like English. But it turns out if you look carefully in other languages, you can see them too. It's interesting that we are now turning to sort of pictograms like the emojis. And how will, how will we understand each other in that era? I guess we're already in that era. You know, when we when we text, we're using emojis a lot, and the younger generation has used them tremendously. And as we all know, the amount of emojis at our disposal on an iPhone, for instance, are are just there just so many than there were just a few years ago. So how it'll continue to affect things is unclear, but I suspect, as given the current trend, it'll continue to be used more. What I find interesting about it from a historical sense is that even our writing system ultimately can be dated back to um, a pictographic form of writing, right? And many of the world's writing systems have some pictographic element to them that's much more systematic than, than even emojis, right? But now we're seeing this transition from a language like ours that has an alphabet, and we're seeing the benefit of having these pictographic systems too. So something that helped get writing going now We've come full circle where obviously we're not abandoning the alphabet to go straight to emojis, but we can see some of the advantages that led to the development of writing creeping back into advantages in communication uh, in, in texting now. And this tragically coincides with the death of so many languages. It does. That's one of the most pervasive trends, unfortunately, in linguistic diversity today is that we are seeing it drop off tremendously. So of the over 7,000 languages that I mentioned, depending on how you do the, the counting, roughly half of them are quite endangered, right? And so by some metrics, the majority of them are endangered. And this, this is for a lot of reasons. 
Um, but some of it is often economic, as I've seen in Amazonia, where people are just migrating to languages like Portuguese that they need to get jobs. In some cases, it's been to the actual death of people groups. But yes, this this sort of realization of the importance of linguistic diversity for the study of human cognition and human communication, that that realization has been made, you know, over the last few decades as we've had this acceleration of the loss of linguistic diversity, which is more than unfortunate. Time well spent, to go back to the topic of time. Time with uh, Dr. Caleb Everett, Professor of Anthropology and Psychology at the University of Miami. Caleb is the author of A Myriad of Tongues, How Languages Reveal Differences in How We Think, published by Harvard University Press. A privilege to talk to you, Caleb. Wonderful to talk to you. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.